Well, good morning, everyone. Uh, if you're a guest with us, my name's John. I'm uh, one of the pastors here at Fifth. It's great to be worshiping with you this morning. And uh, we always have a little, like a, an insider's plan for the day, the notes on how the service is going to flow. And in the, in the announcement section, where Christian was doing his announcements, the last, the last one reads, secret announcement. <laughs> CV. So I wondered how he was actually going to do that. That was quite nice. Russ, Jackie, thumbs up on that one? We are overjoyed for Christian and for Rachel. Just such very good news. <laughs> and before we dive in, let's pray together, shall we? Lord, we do bless you. Uh, you are our joy and our strength. Thank you for what you've done for us in Jesus. Come, Emmanuel. Uh, come to us again. Return to this earth which is yours. Come to us now by your spirit that we might understand your word and know you better. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. We, uh, we continue our Advent series today called Keep Watch uh, because Advent is about keeping watch. It's the first season in the church year and very intentionally so, uh, we Christians set aside uh, a whole month, the first month of our year to practice active waiting for Jesus, to remind ourselves that this isn't a distant idea that we kind of cling on to feebly. Jesus promised to return, and he will. And the Lord himself gave us the command to keep watch. He said it in Matthew, therefore keep watch because you do not know on what day your Lord will come. Now the, the early church, as we've kind of said in the last couple messages, was very much looking forward to the return of Christ. And somewhere in the history of the church, around in the Middle Ages, uh, this celebration around Christmas time, uh, the season of Advent, took a, a bit of a turn and, and some of our eyes began to look more uh, backwards than forwards. And of course the season is both, we remember the first coming of Jesus, but we must not forget that we're remembering that he will come again. And in many ways, Advent is a season where we intentionally redirect our gaze because there's something about life that kind of has us fix our eyes on the rearview mirror of life, looking at what has been sometimes rather than what will come. It would be much like trying to drive a car, hopping in, fixing your eyes on the rearview mirror alone, putting it in drive, and punching the gas if we were to live our spiritual lives simply looking back at the first Christmas. So we don't do that. You know, spiritually, you need to look where you're going. You know, that's a, that's a good idea, and that's what we do in this season. One of the ways we, we keep watch is by preparing the way for the Lord. We talked about that a bit last week. We do that by repenting changing our thinking about life and God and the world and what's going on in, in our lives. Um, and, and then the scripture that was read this morning at the candle lighting, that passage from Isaiah 35, is also our scripture text for the sermon. It, it's a bit of a summary of our future hope. It's both a promise and a picture of what will be. Now, Isaiah can be kind of a challenging book. There's, there's a lot going on in it, and sometimes it's, it's hard to understand. But what Isaiah was doing in this passage, he's sharing a vision 
of the future of the world that God has revealed to him. And it's, it's specifically a picture of what the future will look like for people who trust Christ. It's what we can expect. And it comes in two halves. It comes saying what will be, and then halfway through the passage, there's a key pivot point with the word then. It promises that God will come to save, then God comes to save, and these other things unfold. So we'll look at that scripture kind of verse by verse throughout the body of the message today. Again, it's both a promise and a picture. So let's, let's dive in. The first part, waiting. In the waiting, what do we do? You know, there's a promise prior to the fulfillment and then there's a description of what that promise will look like fulfilled. Here's the promise part. The desert and the parched land will be glad. The wilderness will rejoice and blossom. Like the crocus, it will burst into bloom. It will rejoice greatly and shout for joy. The glory of Lebanon will be given to it, the splendor of Carmel and Sharon. They will see the glory of the Lord, the splendor of our God. And the promise is a promise of life rich and full, ordered and beautiful. There's all sorts of imagery in those, in those two simple verses we read. Uh, in the scripture, Lebanon represents fertility, Carmel represents order, and Sharon represents beauty. Fertility and order and beauty, life, abundant, ordered and full. Also in the scripture, the desert represents danger. And Middle Eastern people are, are very tuned to the danger of the desert and the sun. It, it comes up in other places in scripture, like in Psalm 121, remember this? The Lord watches over you. The Lord is your shade at your right hand. You know, you need, you need protection from that which will kill you because the desert will kill you. The sun will kill you. The sun will not harm you by day, nor the moon by night, promises God. So Middle Eastern people are tuned to the desert as a place of, of danger where you need help. Very interestingly, that moon by night part uh, refers to the ancient understanding that moonlight would cause a person to go insane, to go kind of crazy. It's where we get our word lunacy, right? Lunar makes you crazy. Interesting, right? Um, that, that, that Middle Eastern view of the desert I experienced firsthand when I spent a summer in Kuwait. I learned all sorts of lessons. The first being, you shouldn't spend the summer in Kuwait. <laughs> the Kuwaitis all know this. They go to Cyprus. They leave the country in the summertime because it's so hot. Uh, while there, between my middler and senior year in seminary, I served the National Evangelical Church of Kuwait and I stayed with an army major. He had a spare bedroom, so I spent the entire summer uh, living in his apartment. And in that mix, I met a bunch of military people and all sorts of stories emerged. One, a US tank crew operating in the Kuwaiti desert, which is the Arabian desert, measured an air temperature in the desert north of 70 degrees Celsius. 70 degrees Celsius equates to 158 degrees. That's the air temperature, and it was higher than that. I didn't know it got that hot anywhere in the world. I thought we capped out at about 130. 
the desert is dangerous and the sun will kill you. Waiting for a bus in Kuwait, I remember it so vividly right across from my apartment, it was a big open field, no trees, just some telephone poles. People would stand in single file line in the shadow of the telephone pole because it was the only shade around. The sun will hurt you. You need shade. And when I, when I went out for a run, people looked at me like I was crazy. <laughs> Nobody ran over there. Uh, one time I knew even I overdid it. Back when I was more of a runner, I liked running on hot days. I always did better in races when it was hot. I didn't slow down as much as other people. So I was out running on a very hot day and realized I need shade. And I need shade right now. So I veered off the main road into a little neighborhood and found a, a big, beautiful home that had some trees. And I thought, oh, I'm going to sit outside their wall and get some shade. And as I approached their wall, I realized that they had built into in their wall a little indentation. They had a little bench and a fountain with running water, drinkable, and bushes and trees. And I thought, this is Middle Eastern hospitality. This is a, a place to rest and be refreshed because the desert is dangerous and the sun will kill you. And that this promise of Isaiah is that place of danger will become a place of flourishing, a place of life. I mean, that the promise is about God bringing life to dead people and places. And this is the promise of God throughout Scripture. In Ezekiel, the Spirit speaks to dry bones and says, live, walk, rise, and the flesh remounts them and they come alive again. I mean, Jesus said it. I have come that you might have life and have it to the full. See, following Jesus is a better way to live than not following Jesus because there's more life and beauty and order following Jesus. Not an absence of pain. No Pollyanna stuff here. Just more beauty, life, and order. I mean, the promise is a promise of life. And, and another part of the promise is that they will see the glory of the Lord. Look, it's in the last couple lines part of verse two there, they will see the glory of the Lord, the splendor of our God. So who is they? If you rewind in Isaiah and put the pieces together, they refers to God's people, the, the worldwide church of Jesus, all who've confessed faith in Christ and you know, believe in their hearts that Jesus was raised from the, the dead and confess with their mouth that Jesus is Lord. I mean, all those who've been made right with God, not by what we do for ourselves, not by how religious we are, but by what God has done for us in Jesus. That's the they. And, and they will see the glory of the Lord, says Isaiah. Therefore, take heart in the promise and strengthen the feeble hands. Steady the knees that give way. Say to those with fearful hearts, be strong, do not fear. Your God will come. He will come with vengeance and divine retribution. He will come to save you. He will come 
to save you. You In the waiting, we remember the promise and we encourage each other. That's what we do. One of my favorite names for God in the Old Testament that emerged during our series last summer is the name that that comes in Jeremiah 23, uh, referring to the coming king who would be the Messiah. Jeremiah says his name will be Yahweh Tzidkenu, or the Lord who makes you righteous, the Lord who makes you right again. You see, the promise is that God himself will come to save. He will come to make things right. But more than that, more than coming to make things right, the promise is that God himself will come to make us right. The Lord who makes you righteous. And so we wait. We practice waiting. And then he appears. It's the pivot point in this passage. Verse five, the move is from will come to then. The change is from waiting to welcoming, from hoping to seeing, from remembering to experiencing. When the coming king arrives, then will the eyes of the blind be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then will the lame leap like a deer and the mute tongue shout for joy. Water will gush forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. The burning sand will become a pool, the thirsty ground bubbling springs. In the haunts where jackals once lay, grass and reeds and papyrus will grow. Water will gush forth in those desert places where we desperately need shade and water. Abundance, no more danger. You know, every, every deserted and dry spiritual place of our lives will become an oasis in Jesus. You know, burning sand will become a pool. The 158 degree Arabian desert of your life will become a Palm Springs resort. And that's not the end of the vision, says Isaiah. And a highway will be there, he writes. It will be called the way of holiness. It will be for those who walk on that way. The unclean will not journey on it. Wicked fools will not go about on it. No lion will be there, nor any ravenous beast. They will not be found there. No more danger is what that means but only the redeemed will walk there and those the Lord has rescued will return. They will enter Zion with singing. Everlasting joy will crown their heads. Gladness and joy will overtake them and sorrow and sighing will flee away. A good friend of mine gave me the best book on Isaiah I have in my library. It's called Isaiah by the Day by a British theologian named Alec Motier. Listen to Dr. Motier on this passage. He's talking about the the vision that Isaiah is painting of the world that God gave to him. And he writes, we now read the full story. story. We, We get the full picture of what things will be like. We'll walk a protected path, assured of arrival. We will have safe homecoming in the end and unbroken happiness. 
it's all right here. There will be a highway, literally an elevated path, a higher way from which we have perspective on the world and everything happening in it. It will be a protected path. No ill intending person will be there. No lion, no ravenous beast. Danger will be gone. Only the redeemed will walk on it. For those of you who were around in the fall, remember back to, to Romans chapter three. For there is no distinction for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift. That's the legal word, justified, declared right through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, the divine buyback plan. That's the business word, the commercial term that's in Christ. The redemption, God's buyback plan executed in Jesus. Those whom God by the blood of Christ has purchased for the purpose of setting free, they will enter Zion with singing. Everlasting joy will crown their heads. Gladness and joy will overtake them and sorrow and sighing will flee away. One more note from Dr. Motir's little book. He uh, works out his own rendering of the Hebrew text. He puts that passage we just read this way. And eternal rejoicing will be upon their heads and they will overtake happiness and rejoicing and sorrow and sighing will flee away. There's a little difference there. Did you catch it? Who or what is doing the overtaking? Will God's people be overtaken by gladness and joy or will they overtake gladness and joy? It is, it is no news to any of us that life is full of pain and sorrows. We experience this. This is one of the greatest challenges sometimes to faith. These things are real. There are too many to count. You know them. You have them. You carry some of them in your heart and will carry them until the day you die. Divorce is real. Parents die too early. Children die before their parents. Not the way it's supposed to be. Countless numbers of evils are are committed in this world every day. And they're not just stories on the news. They happen to people. People like you and me. Sometimes they happen to us. I mean, these things are real. To the outward eye, we see a life full of twists and turns, a dangerous journey, pitfalls along the way with certain and seemingly intolerable loss. How are we supposed to do this? And yet, God's promise is that while it might seem like the journey is treacherous and precarious, there is a path. There's a highway, God's way, that is protected, not from pain and loss now, but from any worldly hazard dislodging us from it. 
And the promise includes more than just security. Look at the text again. On God's highway, we will finally catch up with the gladness and joy we've been pursuing but has previously eluded us. And the sorrow and sighing will flee away. That's the promise. That's the joy. There's one final detail we shouldn't miss. In Matthew 11, we read this. When John, that's John the Baptist now, when John heard in prison what Jesus was doing, he sent his disciples to ask him, are you the one who was to come or should we expect someone else? Jesus replied, go back and report to John what you hear and see. The blind receive sight. The lame walk, those who have leprosy are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the good news is proclaimed to the poor. Blessed is anyone who does not stumble on account of me. When asked point blank, Jesus, are you the one? Jesus quoted the text we read from Isaiah today. When asked Jesus, are you the one? He said, look, blind people see, deaf people hear. Lame people walk. Remember what our passage said. Then will the eyes of the blind be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then will the lame leap like a deer and the mute tongue shout for joy. Then. Clearly Jesus is saying, yeah, I'm the one. I am God who has come to save you. Wrote Isaiah, and a highway will be there. It will be called the way of holiness. It will be for those who walk on that way. Said Jesus, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. God's highway is a person, not not a religion, not a philosophy, not a list of life's best practices. This brings to mind this, this great image of scripture. If you're not as familiar with the Bible in the Old Testament, Jacob had a dream while he was at Bethel of a, a stairway. Really, it was a pyramid with those stairs that kind of go up, a ziggurat, and connecting earth and heaven. And he saw angels ascending and descending that, moving back and forth between heaven and earth. And then Jesus comes and says this, very truly I tell you, you will see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. He's saying, I'm the way. I'm the one, I'm the bridge, I'm the connection between God and people. Jesus is God's highway. Jesus is God's protected path. Our relationship with Jesus is that which assures our arrival, assures our homecoming, a safe homecoming, and gives us hope of a future of unbroken happiness when everything sad will come untrue and all things will be made new. And Jesus himself invites us up onto that road with him. Come to me all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. 
Take my yoke upon you and learn from me for I am gentle and humble in heart and you will find rest for your souls. If you're tired, if you're hurting, if you're weary, if it's hard to hope, if you're just numb, Jesus says, come to me. Come to me and you will find rest for your souls. Jesus is God's highway and promises a protected path, an assured arrival, a safe homecoming and unbroken happiness. Despite all our past and current pain, Keep watch. He's coming back. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Pray with me, please. Lord, pour out your Spirit upon us. Help us turn toward you. Show us what we're gripping on to too tightly. Help us overcome that which might be hindering our turning to you. We turn, we, we return to you, God. Help us be our strength and our joy. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.